Welcome to the official podcast of Rock Hills Church in San Antonio, Texas. Last Sunday, Pastor Al Hassler kicked off our series Rhythm, in which we'll explore how worship, work, and rest create a rhythm to our lives that allow us to experience a fuller life that's centered around Christ. Join us next Sunday at 1031 a.m. at Hebner Elementary as we continue this series and visit us online at rockhills.com and at Rock Hills Church on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to see how you can be involved in what God is doing at Rock Hills. My name is Al Hasser. I'm one of the pastors here. And when I was moving in my spiritual journey from being an atheist to then believing in God and finally to putting my faith in Christ, there was two questions that I wrestled with more than any other, probably, that that almost haunted me. One was, why did God create us? Why Why did he create human beings? And the second was, why does he command us to worship him? Those were questions that I that I had lingering doubts about. For instance, my thought is, well, did he create us because he's somehow needy? Uh, did, did he create us because, maybe even worse, because he's, he's bored and, and he just wants some toys for his amusement? And I want to suggest to you, if, if, if that's a lingering question in your soul, there's no way you'll ever trust God and believe in him. And, and those questions were put to rest when I finally came across Ephesians 2, 6, that says this, it says that God created us in Christ Jesus so for eternities to come, he can pour out his love and blessing upon us. And the research has showed recently, by the way, that that's really the primary reason most people have children. We all understand that children are not a net economic benefit to our family. They don't bring much to the table. But there seems to be a joy and satisfaction that we get in simple, simply the act of loving. And what Ephesians, that verse in Ephesians is really saying is that we have a God who is so overflowing with exuberant love that he created us simply for the joy that he will have in pouring out that love and blessing upon all of us for eternity. And so I finally was put to rest any doubt about God's motives in creation for me. But then I was faced squarely with the question of, but, but why does he command us to worship him? Is, is he some sort of egotistical God that, that gets off on us, you know, saying how wonderful he is? Why would he do that? Well, that's the topic of today's message. So please join me in a word of prayer. Father, oh, Father, I... I as, as I've grown in my understanding of worship, I long to be able to communicate what you have taught me about this important activity. But, but I'm reminded again, Father, that your word says that, that the words of a man, no matter how persuasive, are incapable of making eternal changes in people's hearts and souls. You say that unless the Lord builds the house, the builder labors in vain. And, and Father, we need you to come today. Would you build in my friends here in Rock Hills, build in them an understanding in their hearts and minds and souls, an understanding of this thing we called worship. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we are beginning a new series called Rhythm, as you can see on our graphic. And it, what, the reason for that is, is if you, as you read the scripture, this concept sticks out as something that is woven in the very fabric of the universe, the very fabric of all creation. 
We see rhythm right from the beginning. It's in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created in the heavens and the earth. Then there was evening and there was morning the first day. Then God created the lands and the seas. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And then God creates other things. There's evening and morning the third day. Evening and morning the fourth day. And you see right from the beginning... There's a rhythm to creation. And this is carried on throughout the scripture. And we get to Ecclesiastes. And, and the Solomon, the wisest man who ever walked the planet, is talking about the human being and, and the plight of the human being. And again, he brings up rhythm. And he says, there is a season for everything in the human life. And, and we all understand that, that we are seasonal creatures, that, that this, there's a seasonal rhythm to our life. There's there's summer and then fall and then winter and spring. And summer and fall and winter and spring. Another rhythm that we are engaged in. And, and then finally Solomon says, there's a time to laugh and a time to weep. A time for war and a time for peace. A time to live and a time to die. And we see that this idea of rhythm is just central to everything about us and our creation. And that is why we call this series Rhythm. And what's interesting to me is, once again, science has caught up with the truths of the Scripture. There's actually a whole new area of science that studies what we know as circadian rhythms. These are rhythms that are governed by the daily 24-hour cycle. And there's a whole area of science called chronobiology that studies circadian rhythms. And we have a definition for circadian rhythms. They are the physical and biological changes that follow a roughly 24-hour cycle, responding primarily to light and darkness in an organism's environment. They are found in most living things, including animals, plants, and many tiny microbes. The study of circadian rhythms is called chronobiology. Now, what's interesting is you look at this, It's really talking about the biological creature, the physical creature. And we know from our scripture that human beings, above all other creatures, we alone are are created in the image of God. And if circadian rhythms are important for our biological self, and they are, then there may be a rhythm that we need to talk about that's important for the full human being, because Human beings don't just have biology. We're just not physical beings. We have a mind. We have a soul. We have a spirit. And so the purpose of this series is to help people understand the rhythm that God intends for for human beings, the only creatures created in the image of mankind. And and there's many activities that God ordains in the rhythm of our life. There's worship, and then there's work, and then there's rest and other things And what I want to suggest to you today, and I hope this motivates you to listen carefully, is that if worship isn't the central activity of your life, if it isn't the first priority of your life, the entire rhythm of your life will be off and out of whack, and you will never find satisfaction and peace. Let me say that again. If worship isn't central to your life, you will never find satisfaction and peace. That is how important it is. 
And as, it, as I studied for today's message, I realized that just about every chapter of the Bible mentions worship in some way or form. And, and, I, and I kept thinking, what is the best place from which to teach about worship? And what I kept coming back to is Psalm 95. Psalm 95 is considered the ultimate psalm of worship. It actually has a name. It's, it's called the Benite. That's a Latin word for come. And for centuries, Christians have looked at Psalm 95 as the definitive word on this thing that we call worship. And so we're going to read it and look at it today. And the reason it's called the Benite is the very first word of the psalm in Latin is come. It is the God of the universe beckoning us, his children, to come and worship him. So let's take a look at that together. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout out loud to the rock of the salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And there are many important characteristics and topics of worship that you can, that you can get out of this psalm if you study it. But I just want to address three questions that I think this psalm addresses very clearly and very well. First question is, what is worship? What is worship? The second is, why should I worship? And the third is, how can I worship? Those are the three questions we're going to be looking at today. So the first is, what is worship? And the word worship actually comes from an old English English word, worthship. It was a word that was signifying you saw the worth of something. And so my working definition for what worship is today, it is realizing and acknowledging the ultimate value of God in a way that engages your emotions, your mind, and your will. It engages all three, your emotions, your mind, and your will. And and the first thing it engages is your emotions, and we see that in the very first verse. It says, uh, let us sing and shout for joy. Excuse me. And what I want to suggest to you is this. If you are coming here or anywhere else to worship and your emotions are not engaged, then that's not real worship. It's it's simply sort of going through a ritual in in a robotic way. The emotions, if you see the value and worth of something, your emotions will naturally be engaged in it. And, And we see this clearly in a parable Jesus told in Matthew 13. Many of us remember the parable. 
there's a man walking through a field that's for sale and he sees this great treasure. And he's just overwhelmed by this, the beauty and the wonder of this treasure. And it says, the parable says, with great joy, he went and sold everything he owned to buy that field. You see, his his emotions were engaged in, in that. If you see the worth of God, your emotions will be engaged. Now, let me make this clear. I'm not a very emotional guy by nature. I, I you know, as an engineer and a lawyer, and, and I'm, I'm very left-brained and logical, and I tend to, uh, you know, think things through, and, and I don't easily feel emotion. But as I, as I come in and worship, like this morning, and I'm hearing, hearing those beautiful songs, and, and as I contemplate the beauties and wonders of God, I feel some semblance of stirring in my soul. So, you know, I'm, I'm not saying you have to be bouncing off the roof or anything like that, but if you're not having your soul stirred in some way, shape, or form, then you need to go to God and, and get to know him better. Study the scripture and know his characteristics because you're, if you see his worth, you will be stirred. And the second thing it does, worship always engages the will. And we see that, I think, in verse 6. And this is what it says. It says, Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. You see, that's an act of the will. David is going and literally kneeling down. He's bowing before the Lord. And what I want to suggest to you today is if there isn't an act of the will to change your behavior, to actually modify your behavior, then that's not real worship either. You see, many people can have an emotional experience. You go to the mountains, or, or sometimes you go out at night in a, in a place where there's not much light. You see the Milky Way and other stars, and, and it can be an overwhelming experience. And the scripture says that is an experience of God. We, we intuitively, intuitively know that beauty that enthralls us is a reflection of God. And as it turns out, did you know that up to 80 or 85% of Americans say that they believe in God and that they are Christians? But if you look at the behavior of those people, the conduct, you would not see that they've put their will in, in conformity with their beliefs. They're not changing their behavior one bit. If you looked at their lives, you'd say they're not Christians because they're not following these wonderful guidelines God has given us for for a beautiful life. And so emotions are great, but if there's no change in the will, it is not worship. And the third part of what we see that worship is, is we worship God with our mind. Now, We see that in the verse 8, I believe, where the psalmist says, Do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Masa in the desert. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. To hear and to follow God's instruction is, is is a cognitive act. You have to hear, you have to listen. And so your mind must be engaged in the worship of God. Now, I want to make this clear. My wife Jan and I worship, and our, and our temperaments are very different. I, I love to search out the most difficult uh, questions of our faith. I love to, to study doctrine and, 
and understand some of the intricacies of doctrine. And Jan has no interest in those things. That does not mean that she's not engaging her mind. Jan is a very bright woman. And if you asked her the, the foundations of the gospel, she would very, very clearly be able to say, well, we all rebelled against God. And she would know in her mind that she had done that in, in her past. And because of that rebellion, God had to, had to punish us and we incurred a debt. That's what the gospel says. And, and Jan grasps that and, and engages her mind in that truth. But God in his love sent Jesus to live the perfect life and die the death and pay our debt. And she could go on and on and explain the gospel because her mind is engaged in the rudiments of our faith. And I want to suggest, if you can't engage your mind in the faith, you'll never fully worship. There seems to be this undercurrent in American society that, that being a Christian means taking this blind leap of faith, that, that somehow you have to check your brain at the door and, and in order to be a Christian. And I couldn't disagree more. I think our, our, our faith is completely logical. It has powerful arguments for its truth. And if you've never engaged at the mind level, I really want to encourage you to do that because I'm afraid you won't sustain your faith. And let me just give you a little example. Let's suppose I, I told a group of people that there's a, a sky fairy. And if you'll go home and, and bow down and say these magic words, the sky fairy will sp- sprinkle fairy dust on you and you'll be wealthier than you can imagine. You'll have great health for all your life. And some people will probably get excited about that. And they, they may even go home and bow down and say the magic words. And, and they might sustain that for a while, hoping against hope that this fantasy is real. But eventually they'd realize, well, that's just nonsense. And so you have to have uh, uh, your, your mind engaged, at least at the basic levels of our faith. And after that, it's just a matter of temperament, how, how deeply you want to go in the intricacies of the intellectual aspects of the faith. And so that is the what of worship. We worship, what worship is, is recognizing and acknowledging the ultimate worth of God in a way that engages your brain and your heart and your will. Now, the second thing I want to talk about is why worship. And the answer to that question is really quite simple. You need to worship. Why should you worship? You need to worship because each and every person is already worshiping something. We are. And and a lot of people think that the world can be divided in those people who worship and those people who don't. That's just not true. It's a lie. And, And I can, you know, we are all creatures. We have been created. We are created beings. We cannot take nothing and create something. So we understand by our mere existence that we have been created and there's something above us. So it's built into the very core of our being that we are not ultimate. And there must be something ultimate. And here's what I want to suggest, that whatever you look at as ultimate in your life, that thing which will most satisfy you, that is what you are worshiping. There's a, there's a wonderful moment in the, in the very first book of Harry Potter. And, and Harry, as many people know, he, he, his parents died at birth. He was an infant. He never knew his parents. And he's at the school, and he comes across this mirror. 
And he's gazing into the mirror, and he's always longed to, to know and see his parents. And he's gazing into the mirror, and all of a sudden, he sees his parents. And, and he sees them talking, and, and he's getting to know them a little bit. And this has been the desire of his heart. And he, he calls his friend Ron Weasley over, and Ron comes over, and he says, look into the mirror, Ron, look what you see. And Ron looks in, he says, this is a wonderful mirror. I see that I'm a great athletic champion, and I'm going to be the headmaster of the school. And, and they're confused. They, they don't understand why they're seeing different things. Well, the Harry Potter books, they're, for, they're for mainly for kids. They're not very subtle. The, the mirror of Erised is desire spelled backwards. And so the, the quality of this mirror is such that when you look into it, you see that thing you most desire, the thing you want most in life. And the author has captured a very important principle. And that is, we all worship something. Something is ultimate in all of our lives. Something we are looking to at, that we believe will bring us satisfaction. For some people, it's true love. Some people think, you know, some people, I, I've talked to some people who are married, and they say, I'm unhappy because I know there's a true love out there, and this person I'm married to is not that person. And they're, they're worshiping true love. Or maybe they're single, and, and they're sure that all their problems are going to be solved if only they get married. And I know there's a few single folks here. And let me just say, if you think you're unhappy now, wait till you're married. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. There are some wonderful, wonderful blessings, obviously. I've been happily married for 30 years. It's an amazing, amazing journey and rich satisfactions. But do not ever worship relationships. Don't worship anything. Some people, some people are certain that if they just had enough money, maybe if they had a million dollars, all their problems would be solved. They, they would want for nothing. They'd be deeply satisfied and joyful. It's just a lie. Some people, some people think, you know, if, if my kids were only doing well, then I would be happy. And, and you can go on and on through the list. And whatever you're looking to as the ultimate satisfaction in life, it's not going to satisfy you. It just isn't. And, and we see that most clearly in the life of Solomon. Most of you know his story. He was the richest man on the planet, wasn't he? He, he had, uh, he, at one point in his life, God said, what do you want, Solomon? And he said, I want wisdom. And God said, wow, that's a great answer. And for that, I'm going to give you wisdom, plus make you the richest man in the world. And Solomon went through life going after everything that this world says was satisfied. Solomon had hundreds of wives and hundreds of concubines. He was the richest man in the world. He was the most powerful man in the world. He partied harder than anybody who has ever lived on this planet. He did it all. He has experienced anything you can think of that our culture is holding out as a God, whether it's, it's you know, sexual intimacy or, or love. He wrote the Song of Solomon, one of the most beautiful love essays ever written, ever penned by a human being. He had true love. He had wealth beyond imagination. He had people bowing down to him and worshiping him. And at the end of Ecclesiastes, at the end of his life, he said, I've come to the conclusion of the matter. This thing only, worship God. And I want to tell you folks, that is why we should worship God. Because to worship anything else 
is going to cause dissatisfaction. You, you wonder why, and I, I include myself in this, we wonder why there's, there's so much dissatisfaction in our lives, so, much, so many times we have a troubled heart. It's because we're going after the, same th- the wrong things. We're thinking something's going to satisfy, and it's simply not going to satisfy. And we need to understand that connecting and worshiping God alone, as Solomon said, is the only hope for joy and satisfaction. And the third thing I talked about that we were going to discuss is how can you worship? How can you worship? And, and the answer to that is, it's, it's almost uh, hidden in here, but it's, it seems so plain in some ways that it seems obvious. Look what the psalmist says. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us, verse 2, let us come before him. Verse 6, come, let us bow down in worship. The whole psalm is written in the plural. You know, there's, there's a time and a place for worshiping God, just you and God. There, there is a time and a place for that. But the presumption, the, the, the norm is going to be worshiping God in community. We see that in Revelation. At the end of this earth, when God brings the new heavens and the new earth, all of us are going to be together in this place where there will be no more tears and we will all know each other as we were meant to be known and we will all be worshiping God together and that will be the norm when we're when we're finally in our real home and until then what God is instructing us is we need to come together in a worship community to fully experience him and I think there's at least a couple there's many reasons for that but I can think of a couple first of all it's just a different experience of God when you worship in a community. You know, I love my alone time with Jan. When we're, we're sitting there over dinner or, uh, you know, on a walk and we're talking, those are special and wonderful times. But when, when Jan and I go out with another couple, it's very common for me to see aspects of her personality with that couple that I don't see when it's just the two of us. Other people bring out parts of Jan that I don't get to see when we're alone. And in the same way with me. We love each other with all our heart. But there's a great dynamic that happens when you interact with other people. And that's really what's going on in a faith community. When we worship together, I hear beautiful voices. I see people engaging with God with with hands up or just the way that their body language. And that moves me and helps me worship God. You know, I have some Bible studies here at Rock Hills that I dearly love, and there's so many wise uh, guys here at Rock Hills, and, and when they're sharing their heart, I'm learning so much about God through their perception and experience of God. So that is why we are instructed to follow God and to worship God in a faith community. And, and there's a second reason, and it goes to the very design of the human being. You know, I, I struggled with, why does God command us to worship him? And it turns out that psychological studies, I, I read a art, whole article about, about enjoyment and pleasure, and the psychological studies say that the ultimate enjoyment of something is actually sharing it with someone else and expressing it. And, and we've had that experience. I mean, there's a reason why 
the, you know, just about everybody has a Super Bowl party. Uh, they want to they see something like a Super Bowl with other people because that increases the enjoyment. You know, again, another great example of that is sometimes you'll, you'll be walking along with some people and, and you'll see something that nobody else sees. Maybe it's a, a hawk flying through, you know, in the sky or maybe it's a beautiful sunset. And what's the first thing that happens? Hey, hey everybody, look at that sunset. It's not something you even think about. It just spontaneously comes out of us. We are designed in a way that we get ultimate enjoyment of something by expressing it and sharing sharing it with someone else. And God knows that. He designed us. And so when he commands us to worship him and worship him in community, it's for our enjoyment, not because he has need of anything. God needs nothing at all. And so worship needs to be done in community. And it is not something that is needy. That It's not because God is needy that he commands worship. And, and you, know, you can put to rest this idea that somehow he needs our worship. He simply does not. And what that means is this. When God commands us to worship him, it's really the only true and good thing he can say, isn't it? What if he said, Al, you know, the, the greatest thing you'll ever experience is surfing that wave in Costa Rica. Go, go do that. Or, you know, the greatest thing you'll ever experience is making a million dollars. The greatest thing you'll ever experience is, you know, marrying this person. It would just be a lie. The only thing God can truly say that is honest and true and and good is to say, you need to worship me. You know, as as I've been reflecting on this whole idea of worship, it it seems so abstract. It it seems seems not very practical. And and I was wondering how I was going to try to, to communicate that it is very practical. And God in his sovereign mercy... Uh, this, this past week, I happened to be with a friend of mine, and his son is autistic. And uh, I guess his son is about seven now. And through those years, it's, it's been a difficult journey for my friend. And I, he's a Christian man, and, and we've talked often, and he's shared very openly with the struggles that he's had with that. And this past week, we were talking, and I, I asked him how he was doing. He said, Al, you know, I'm doing really well. And I said, I, you know, I can sense that, and I want to encourage you. That, that's great. I'm glad to hear that. And I said, can you, any idea why? He said, yeah, I think so. He said, about six months ago, I realized that every time I went to God, it was to ask him for something. You know, would you heal my son? Would you, you know, help our marriage get over the difficulty of, of this tension in our marriage? Would, would you help me focus at work because my son is distracting me and would you protect my daughter uh, from, from hurt and other things from her brother? And, and on, I was always just asking him all the time. He said, one day I just got tired of just going to God like he was a, an ATM machine and asking for things. And I decided, you know, I'm just going to worship God. And so that morning I got up and for a couple of minutes, I just, I just kneeled. He said, it's pretty uncomfortable to kneel. And I just did it for a couple of minutes, but I just, I just wanted to kneel for a minute and and say, God, you know, you're my king. 
And then I started reading some of the Psalms that I love and, and understanding what, what the psalmist is saying about the wonders of God. And then I decided to just list some of the attributes of God that are so amazing and, and so wonderful. And on my way to work, I, I put on a, a worship CD and I was actually singing to God. He said, but you know what comforted me the most was the gospel. He said, I never realized how much I worshiped when I really thought about the gospel. I said, Al, do you get that? Do you, do you get that we were separated from God and, and we were hopeless? And God didn't want to compromise his justice. And he said, my friend said, I love that about God, that he wouldn't compromise his justice. But he loved us enough that he sent his son to pay the price for our rebellion, to live the perfect life that we couldn't live that then gets assigned to us. And by putting our faith in that, we get to be with our Father forever and we will be worshiping him forever. We're going to see, if you hunger for beauty, we're going to see the most beautiful things you can imagine. If you hunger for love, it's going to be the most loving presence you've ever experienced in. If you hunger for wisdom, you're going you're to experience wisdom deeper than you can ever imagine. As I, as I contemplated the gospel and the reality that I believe I'm going to be reunited with my son and know him as he was meant to be known, he said things started to change. And now the primary way I go to God is through worship. And, it, and as I left his office, I couldn't help but thinking, thank you, God. <laughs> thank you for being such a wonderful father for helping him enter into this thing called worship and helping me understand how practical it is. So I don't, I don't know what you're going through today. I know in a room of this size, there are people who are hurting here. There was a time in our marriage and, and even times since where, where we were really hurting in our marriage. And maybe you're having some struggles there. Maybe you're having financial difficulties. Maybe, maybe you're dealing with a child that, that you wish would, would walk in, in, in a more full and joyful life. I, I don't know what it is. And I want to make sure you understand the Bible has a lot to say about petitionary prayer. You should go to God with your requests. He wants those requests. He's a good God. But don't forget to worship because this is what I want to tell you. If worship isn't central to your life, then everything else is going to be out of rhythm. Let's pray. 